Welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, where you'll find the unique, the bizarre, and sometimes the haunted. Feel free to look around, peruse the items, and never fear. There's nothing here that bites. Hard, anyway. <laughs> ah, hello there. How enraptured I am to see you return to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. I am your shopkeeper, Chris Baker, and today a curious item. If you'll follow me over here to this section of the shop, this is where we keep some of our religious artifacts. And this section in particular deals with many deities and the like of the Mesopotamian region. Many of these items came from what is modern day Iraq, but it is this one over here. This demonic-looking fellow with four wings, this is the King of the Wind Demons. His image has been found all throughout the ancient Middle East, dating back to the first millennium. The earliest evidence of this demon's image was found in a grave of a royal woman entombed in Nimrod, near present-day Mosul, Iraq, dating to about the 8th century. This winged demon of the wind is known to many by the name of Pazuzu. And therein lies the heart of today's episode of Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. So let's pull out the kinetoscope and take a look at the new film, The Exorcist Believer. So The Exorcist Believer is a movie that has probably been I think more seriously talked about since late 2020 into 2021, we really started hearing rumblings that this was actually going to happen. The rights to the Exorcist franchise and to do, which is essentially going to be a trilogy of movies, was purchased for about $400 million and Universal Pictures, Peacock, Blumhouse, uh, Morgan Creek Entertainment, all working together to put out the first of a, a trilogy of movies in the Exorcist franchise. Now, the Exorcist franchise has been kind of a hit or miss franchise over the decades. Of course, the the original Exorcist film that came out in 1973 went down in history as one of the when you're talking about demon possession films, this is the standard bearer. And it is considered by many to be one of the scariest movies of all time. Now, I think when this came out in 1973, you could, in fact, say it was one of the scariest movies of all time. It's not that it's not a scary movie, but I think, you know, when it came out in 1973, you know, you hadn't really seen a lot of the shock and you haven't seen a lot of like the torture porn films of the the early 2000s uh, hadn't come out yet. We hadn't really been desensitized as horror fans as to what is scary. And I think at the time this came out, it is probably one of the scariest movies ever. You know, you had the marketing campaign talking about people leaving the theaters and passing out and people throwing up because of what they saw. I don't know how much of that actually happened and how much of that was just a, a great campaign piece by the filmmakers. But at the time, it was probably the scariest thing moviegoers had seen. 
at that time. Now I think things are a little more extreme. Uh, we get a lot more shock value in our horror films. And I think by today's standards, it's rather tame, I think, to some young moviegoers. But for me, who grew up, you know, I was born the year after The Exorcist came out. And as a kid growing up, I mean, that was that was the pinnacle of some of the most frightening things you've ever seen in horror. And I grew up looking up to this movie. And even now as an adult, I'm on the team that says Exorcist is still a pretty damn scary movie, if not one of the scariest movies of all time. Because I don't think it's scary in what we deem scary today. I think a lot of people equate scary with scares and jump scares. And The Exorcist wasn't that. I mean, there were a couple quick jump cuts and things like that, but not what you would call today jump scares. And it was really scary because of the imagery and the tension and the tone and the atmosphere and the creepiness and and the effects that they used, you know, practical effects that just made this movie a creepy, eerie, scary masterpiece. I'm of the old school mentality that you can't equate scary movies with jump scares. You can have a scary movie and not have a shit ton of jump scares in it. Just like you can have a movie with a shit ton of jump scares and it's not a scary movie. So I think by that standard, The Exorcist really is the gold standard when it comes to horror. After that, the Exorcist 2, The Heretic, was not so good. I rewatched that here. It's been a few years ago, but I rewatched it. I thought, let me let me give this another chance. And I just uh, I found myself bored to tears halfway through it. And I just it's it's just not a good film. The Exorcist 3, while it didn't do well when it came out, I don't even think I saw it in the movie theater when it came out. I think a friend of mine did, and he told me about it, and I didn't watch it until years later. Uh, rented it on shit it may have still been VHS at the time but I think that is a movie that people have appreciated over time and it at the very least like the original Exorcist has some of those iconic moments in a movie and some of that iconic imagery that makes a movie stand the test of time the heretic really doesn't uh, I just remember Locust. That's about it. And then there were a couple really bad prequels. The Exorcist, The Beginning, and then Dominion. Uh, I don't even think I watched those because I just I just didn't care. It, they didn't look good. And it was pretty much the same thing. <laughs> I, I, and I just, I, I don't know. I think I'd kind of run my course of reboots at that time. And, and I never watched those movies. I mean, maybe I'll have to go back and watch them. But when I heard this was coming out, The Exorcist Believer, I thought, okay, I'm going to give this a chance. Even though everything about this screams, you're not going to like it. Of course, David Gordon Green is at the helm of this. Re, not rebooting, but doing a legacy horror film, and you're gonna hear a lot of a lot of people. You, you should probably play a drinking game if you're watching reviews on this movie. Uh, you have to take a drink every time somebody says legacy film or legacy horror uh, with this movie because it is. It's taken uh, a classic franchise, doing a sequel to it, uh, bringing back you know some of the main characters from that movie, uh, reprising their roles, and he did that with Halloween, with that Halloween trilogy that he did. And I just I fucking hated it. I, I mean, it's not to say that there weren't some things to like about the first one. I just hated the treatment that, okay, we're going to 
disregard everything that happened after the original Halloween and and start fresh and start with assuming things didn't happen, you know, assuming Michael Myers and Laurie Strode aren't related. I, I liked that about the original film. Disregarding the fact that Michael Myers has anything supernatural about him. I liked the supernatural aspects of Michael Myers. And it just, to, to me, it was a train wreck of a trilogy. And even beyond the things that I liked about the sequels that they were disregarding in that, Uh, There was so much about the writing and the storytelling that I just absolutely abhorred. And the fact that David Gordon Green and Danny McBride came up with these and just, I I wanted to like it. I heard how big of fans they were and they just fucking took a big shit all over the franchise. The whole time I'm sitting there imagining David Gordon Green and Danny McBride pitching ideas back and forth to one another and anything that comes from Danny McBride, I'm just hearing him pitching ideas about Michael Myers as Kenny Powers. And it just, it makes me laugh, but it also pisses me off. And that's kind of not what you got with this, but this is based on a story that was contrived by David Gordon Green, by Danny McBride, and to round out this unholy trinity of... Uh, of writers that uh, just really kind of piss me off when it comes to uh, sequelizing already established uh, horror IP. Uh, Scott Teams, who was responsible in part for fucking Halloween Kills and that shit show of a movie, and 2022's Firestarter, which was, I had so much hopes for that, and it was just fucking horrible. It, it took every good thing about the book. It took every good thing about the Drew Barrymore movie and just took a big shit on that as well. So needless to say, I was going this with a bit of trepidation as to whether I like it. But, you know, I thought certainly David Gordon Green isn't going to do this again and wreck an established horror IP with yet another trilogy of mediocre at best, shit show at worst movies. And I will say right off the bat that I didn't love this movie. I don't even know if I liked it. It was okay. It was kind of, uh, yeah, okay, that's that was fine. Uh, there's a lot going wrong with this, but there's a lot that's done right with this. And, and we'll get into that when we get into the spo- more spoilery section. I'm going to try and keep things as unspoilery as possible right now. But I think one of, the, one of the good things about this is the fact that it has a really good cast. And I know I've said that before. And, and a really good cast can be the saving grace of mediocre movies. Keeping them mediocre instead of being bad. Uh, and, and I really enjoyed this cast. Uh, Leslie Odom Jr. I thought did a really good job as Victor Fielding. and Dowd as Paula. She's always amazing. The two young girls, Legit Duet as Angela and Olivia Markham as Catherine, I thought did a, an excellent job. Jennifer Nettles from that band Sugarland, that country group Sugarland. She plays Catherine's mom. And she did a really good job. I, I kept watching her and I'm like, who is this? Why does she seem so familiar? And then when I saw her name come up in the end credits, I was like, oh, that's who that was. But but she did a really 
good job and and made me want to see her do some more acting. I know she's done a little bit of acting. She did a couple Dolly Parton, Code of Many Color Christmas shows or something like that. Uh, She was also in Harriet, uh, the Harriet Tubman movie, uh, actually with Leslie Odom Jr. Uh, So she's done a few things. I want to see more of her because I thought she does a really good job with this, this character of Miranda. And then, of course, Ellen Burstyn makes a triumphant return to the franchise, although word on the street is she didn't want to be a part of this at all. She did not want to reprise this role. They offered her a shit ton of money. She still uh, declined. But then they eventually offered her uh, a big ton of money, and then they were going to fund a scholarship for young actors. I can't remember the specifics of the of the scholarship, but it is for young actors, and that's kind of a passion of hers. So because they were going to do that, she decided to, to come on board. And I, I have to say, you know, she did well with what she had. There just wasn't a, enough of her in this. And the trailer really makes it like she is an integral part of this movie, and she is not. If you're going into this thinking that she's going to be in there through the whole movie... You're going to be sadly mistaken. Although, if you do like her being in this movie, you're going to want to stay for the end. Because there's a a, a twist at the end that I didn't see coming. And I, it really kind of, again, another one of those facets of the movie that kept this movie from being a, a bad movie. It made it, you know, firmly in that it's okay because of the ending. That that was a big part of why I was I was quasi okay with this film. And then there's another short list of, of supporting cast that, that all do a really good job. So the cast is really good. The effects are pretty good. Uh, I can't say anything bad about the effects. Uh, they, they used some CG, but for the most part, it felt like they used a lot of practical effects, a lot of practical makeup, which I thought was really cool. It just really kind of felt like two different films, though. You have the big mystery at the beginning of what happened to these girls and trying to find them. And then once they find them, then it gets into a possession movie and uh, just tonally they just felt different and while the the whole idea of this movie in as much as how they were fighting the demons felt a little it takes a village felt a little kumbaya uh, I didn't care for that and I'll go into more detail when we get into the spoilery section I did find that how it all played out was a little more surprising than I thought it was going to be. They took a turn in where this movie was going to end up that I didn't think they were going to have the balls to do. For a movie that didn't show a lot of balls, period. For, for spending $400 million for the rights to this franchise and really taking a big risk uh, in, in doing that. There were very few risks taking during this movie, but one of them was that little bit of an ending, that that climax uh, that that you build up to, and I didn't think they were going to go that route. But up until then, it is your fairly standard Hollywood demon possession film. The only difference is there's two girls instead of one, and they made one white and one black because diversity. Not that that was a bad thing. It almost felt like they were, okay, how can we make this different? We'll have one girl we'll have two girls 
and oh, they can't both be white girls. So we'll have, we'll have one white and one black. And it's like, uh, just like I can hear Danny McBride and David Gordon Green and Scott Team just sitting around a table, like spitballing ideas how we can we can take the same basic premise of The Exorcist, but how can we make it just a little different? So it's different from the The Exorcist, and just all these like really lame ideas that make it different, but different in just terribly obvious ways. Now, that's not to say those two young ladies, Lydia Jewett and Olivia Markham, did do a fantastic job. I really enjoyed their performance. They made these two characters, especially when they got into the possession part, made them really creepy. And when you meet them before, they're very sweet and you care about them. But yeah, just from a storytelling standpoint, I think that's where most of the problems with this movie lie, is in the storytelling. But that's all I'm going to say about this movie before we get into some spoiler territory because I do want to talk about specific things that I liked and probably more didn't like about this movie so uh, if you want to go check it out check it out I'd never tell you not to go see a movie because you know beauty's in the eye of the beholder and you may find this movie very compelling you may love this movie it may be the best thing since the 1973 Exorcist. Or you may absolutely hate it, think it's a hot steaming pile of garbage, and you can't believe you were talked into spending your money on it. I'm right in the middle. I don't think it's that great. I think it's okay. I don't think it's garbage. It's just right there in the middle. It's kind of lukewarm. And you know what the God says about lukewarm, either hot or cold, uh, lukewarm, he's going to spit you out. Unfortunately, I still have the taste of this movie in my mouth. So go check it out for yourself. You be the judge. Then come back and hear my thoughts on it. See how it compares to what you thought about the movie. But if you have watched it or you don't care, you don't even know if you're going to watch it anyway and you just want to hear about the movie, uh, spoilers or not, then we're going to proceed. But from here on out, there are going to be spoilers. So one of the things I really did like about this movie was the way they started it out. Much like The Exorcist from 73, and it felt like an homage to it without feeling like they were retreading it because you have the original exorcist start in Iraq with Max von Sydow's character, the discovery of the Pazuzu statues, and that was really kind of cool. But uh, this, it started out in a very similar way. You had our two main characters, or at least the, the main characters as we think when this is all starting out, uh, Victor Fielding and his wife, uh, Serene Fielding, played by Leslie Odom Jr. and Tracy Graves, respectively. There in Haiti, Serene is uh, pregnant, very pregnant uh, with their daughter. She's kind of walking around this market and gets a like a voodoo practitioner doing like a blessing of their child their unborn child which didn't play into anything uh, because that blessing obviously didn't help but all of a sudden there's this massive earthquake and serene is gravely injured and victor has to make this choice between saving his wife or his child he can't save both and you never see the choice he makes, but they flash forward 13 years and he is with his daughter, Angela, and the mother is gone. So you knew that she died. He chose to save the child, which we're in spoiler territory. So it's not going to be a, a big surprise, especially if you saw the movie, that it, it was an interesting reveal later on when they're going through the the whole exorcism and Angela who's being possessed by this demon reveals that he did not make that choice. He chose to save his wife and let his 
unborn daughter die. That caused a little bit of conflict there. I, I don't know if they really milked that. And I don't think they milked the emotion of that as much or as well as they could have. I mean, it was a it was an interesting reveal. And and it just added a, a different facet and a, and a different kind of horror. The fact that he chose his wife over his daughter, but his wife still died. And, and he's not stuck with his daughter that... But but that whole idea of the demon revealing that she's the daughter he didn't want. And I, I thought it was a really interesting aspect of the movie that, again, just was underutilized. But I like how they start out the movie in a different country, much like the original Exorcist. They started out with the dogs fighting, much like Max von Sydow saw the dogs fighting around the Pazuzu statue. Uh, it, there was a lot of mirroring to that, which I thought was, was interesting. It was a nice homage to the original and it allowed you to to build that connective tissue with the original film that's pretty much where all that ends you don't really get a lot of connective tissue until the chris mcneil character shows up and even that i don't think they handled very well but yeah this first half of the film it really felt like or at least through the first act you have these girls go missing. They go off to the woods to, to do this like little seancey thing so Angela can talk with her mother. And they go missing for three days. And then they reappear mysteriously. They only think a, a few hours have gone by, but it's been three days. And, and when they make that revelation that, oh, you know, it's been three days since you're gone. I first, you know, it's the first thing that came to my mind. Oh, geez, that, you know, because that's a big thing with possession and, and demonology and things like that that is the alleged mo of the devil and the mo of demons to mimic and pervert the things of god and, and christianity that's why 3 a.m is the witching hour because it's 3 p.m when christ gave up his spirit and died on the cross it's perverting that. So knowing that these two girls are going to be possessed and, and quite possibly are already possessed, I thought, oh, that was an interesting choice to make them gone for three days because Christ died and then rose again on the third day. Uh, it seemed very apropos and, and very poetic in that that biblical sense. But then like later on, they spell it out for you. I had already figured it out. I put two and two together. And that's a, a huge problem with this script is that there are moments where they think you are a complete and utter moron. And I don't know about you. I'm not a moron. I'm pretty sure you're not a moron either. And you can put two and two together. But yeah, at a later point in the movie, they come out and say it. Just in case you didn't get it. Jesus died and rose again on the third day. Just like you were gone for three days. And I'm like, oh, you, you did it. You had to tell me. You had to waste a line of exposition to, to make sure I knew what you were implying. There was another really obvious instance of that. When they've got the girls set up in these chairs, tied up. They're about to start the exorcism. All the adults are coming into the room. And, and you see Ann Dowd. Uh, really acting it up. She's brushing the scent away from her face and acting like she's getting ready to retch. And you can tell something stinks in there. And it's something that we've seen before in exorcism movies that uh, people who are possessed by the devil start to stink because they are got festering wounds. They probably haven't bathed in a while and they probably pissed and pooped all over themselves. It's stinky business. Demon possession and exorcism is stinky business. But I don't know if it was a, an actual line in the movie 
from Leslie Odom Jr. or if it was an ADR line, but they have him say, oh, the smell's gotten worse. I'm like, yeah, I I fucking put two and two together that it stinks in there. I didn't need somebody to tell me. I think that's probably part and parcel of the fact that David Gordon Green and his team of writers just don't think you're smart enough to get it. And that's that's what pisses me off. They don't think you're going to get how they're they're cocking over the Halloween franchise and they don't think that you're going to get you're too stupid to understand that they're just t- making a shit show of a beloved franchise. And you're too stupid to understand what we're what we're saying here or what we're doing here. So we got to force feed you lines of exposition so so you get it because God knows you're probably shoving your face full of popcorn and not paying attention. Wiping the drool from your mouth because you're all slack-jawed and and not intelligent enough to figure out what these members of academia have have put on the screen for you. But yeah, these girls finally come back. And then I, I didn't mind the slow build of these girls. They come back, they feel disoriented. And then they start to act a little weird. And they're doing and saying things that are kind of off. And then they, you start to see the slow descent into possession. You got, you know, it's, it's fairly similar to what happened with Reagan in the 73 Exorcist. It's fairly status quo for how a lot of exorcism movies go. But I didn't mind it. I think they did a good job with the representation of, of these girls. Kind of the slow descent into possession. I thought was really good. I think when they're possessed, I think they... I don't know. They could have let go of the reins. Because that was one of the most shocking things about The Exorcist in 73. Is some of the things, some of the lines of dialogue they had Linda Blair saying as Reagan were just, I'm like, man, I, I say some pretty horrible things and a lot of bad swears and a lot of disgusting things, but that's even making me blush. They had them saying things, uh, but it just was not over the top. It wasn't over the top vulgar all the time, kind of like that 73 Exorcist. And I just really wish they would have taken the reins off and really, really went for it. Show some balls. Go for it because you spent a shit ton of money to get the rights to this and you better make this as shocking and as horrific and as scary as you can. And it just didn't feel, it felt like they were holding back on the reins the whole time on this movie. Outside of the ending, which we're going to talk about here not too long. But I think for for the most part, there wasn't a lot of scares in this. And I don't even mean jump scares. I mean, there were a couple really shitty jump scares. The thing with the snake in the the sewer area. A couple other minor jump scares that I just just didn't do anything for me. Because half of them weren't even a part of the horror on the screen. It was just like I said, fake out jump scares. Uh, Something moving really quick. Or uh, a snake hissing. Or some loud noise to startle you. And and that I can't stand that. But as far as like scares. and, And building atmosphere and tension. There was like one really good scene. Where Angela is talking to her father. And they kind of pulled the insidious thing. Where the demon is you know comes out from behind the head. They kind of did that. Uh, I mean, it wasn't anything new, but it was still effective when you had that demon, like possessed version of Angela or, or some kind of demon figure behind her father's head. And 
you you just barely catch it. Like, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? And then a bit of a, a camera turn or, a, you know, uh, Leslie Odom Jr. moves or whatever, and it reveals what you're seeing. And it was creepy. And it was probably one of the creepiest, scariest scenes in the movie. But other than that, yeah, it was just imagery of these two possessed girls in various states of torture or decay or, or what have you. And it just didn't feel like David Gordon Green had the patience to linger on anything long enough to build any tension, to build any suspense, or to, to build any atmosphere. He was too focused on his It Takes a Village theme to even care about making this scary. And I might as well, I, you know, I've referenced it twice now, I might as well talk about that. I get it. The Catholic Church has its problems. The Catholic Church has had a bad rap for a long time. I don't think that what, I don't know how many, but there is a problem with priests doing things to, to little boys that priests shouldn't be doing, and probably some little girls as well. I'm not saying that's not a problem, but that is not indicative of the Catholic Church as a whole. It's not indicative of Catholics, the people that go to church as a whole. So, you know, the, the whole rap that the Catholic Church gets it's got its problems. Everybody's got their problems. Every religion, every sect, every version of a religion has got their problems. And I get the idea that, you know, we've seen the Catholic Church be the hero of the exorcism movie time and again. Do we need to see that again? I'm not saying we do, but this whole thing that David Gordon Green did with the coalition of faiths where you have a catholic and you have a protestant and you have a root work healer and you have some guy i don't know what he does and you have a, a nurse who was gonna be a nun who didn't become a nun and you just got all these different religions and faiths working together hand in hand singing kumbaya and no one religion's right we're all in this together and it's not really faith and God that's going to save anything. It's us just being united community, which really uh, felt like that whole Halloween kills, evil dies tonight bullshit that we had to go through. I kept waiting for somebody to say Pazuzu dies tonight, even though it wasn't really Pazuzu in this. We'll, we'll talk about that later. It's never really mentioned who the demon is, but again, I'll talk about what I've heard from David Gordon Green uh, in interviews and and where I think he's going with that. But uh, but yeah, it just it, it seemed kind of silly. It felt disorganized where you have everybody trying their hand at trying to heal these girls, whether it's saying prayers, whether it's casting out the devil, whether it's the root worker uh, pouring some seasoned water over them. And, until the one moment where the Catholic priest that they do have, who wasn't sanctioned by the Catholic Church to do this, but he comes in like a knight in the shining armor at the very last second, and his exorcism, his prayers, whatever he's saying, seems to be working, where the rest of them failed until they did. Uh, one thing I did enjoy about this was, you know, in the original Exorcist, there's that big iconic scene where Linda Blair's head turns around. And they didn't do that with these girls, but they damn well did that with that priest. And it was disgusting. And it was a creepy, oh my God moment where you're expecting at some point them, one of these possessed girls to do the head spin. But all of a sudden they start turning their heads and 
the priest, Father Maddox, uh, his head starts to turn until it turns not completely around, but it does a 180 and it's facing the wrong way and his neck is snapped. That was probably one of the coolest scenes of the movie. I, I really enjoyed where they subverted the expectation that one of the possessed girls' heads going to spin around and and kind of did a, a perversion of that, which I, I thought was kind of a, an interesting take. And I, I one of the things I really enjoyed about that. But nothing really works. And I think that was one of the interesting things also is that None of these faiths saved these girls. It was only when the the demon or demons, uh, it's never really specified who the demon is or if it is one demon possessing both girls or it's different demons uh, working together. But it is announced that these characters, these people, have to decide which girl lives and which girl dies. And that's where you get the big revelation that uh, that Victor chose his wife over his daughter and she's the daughter he didn't want. But I, I like how they're kind of this unified front where Victor's not going to choose between his daughter and the other girl. Miranda and her husband, the parents of Catherine, they're not going to choose, and they're on this united front. They're not going to play into this demon. And then all of a sudden, shit starts going down, and Catherine's father just blurts out that he is going to choose his daughter. And I think this is probably the only moment in this movie where I felt they really took a chance and, and had some testicular fortitude and really went for it because I thought it would have been real easy for both these girls to be exercised of their demon maybe one of them not completely so we get a sequel or something like that but I figured they were just going to have like the kumbaya moment all the religions of the world come together and cast out the demons and no one religion is the hero and both the girls are, are going to be saved. It would have been really easy to do that, but they did not do that. They put forth this this ultimatum to, to choose one girl over the other. And even though they, they're resolved in not choosing, one of them does. One of them cracks. The father of Catherine cracks and, and chooses his daughter to be saved. And then, of course, the devil is the great deceiver, which that's going to be the name of the next one, the exorcist deceiver. And we see that Angela actually is the one that lives and Catherine is the one that, even though she's the chosen one, she is chosen to die. And I thought that was a pretty bold move. I mean, given how Hollywood this is and given how paint by the numbers this felt as an exorcism movie, I thought it was pretty interesting that they went that route and and it's, it's a bittersweet ending. It's not a happy ending like you get in the original Exorcist. It's not like a happy ending you get in many Exorcism movies these days. And I think it really played into it and maybe in a roundabout way paid off that line in the exorcist there's a an extended scene where father Marin and father Karras are on the staircase and they're talking about why this is happening and there's an extended scene that i really hate was edited out of the original version of the exorcist but if you've watched any like the director's cuts or extended versions that they've come out with in the the past 20 years or so i love that this line is included in that where Father Karras asks why, why this little girl and Father Marin, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but talks about the point is to make us despair, to see ourselves as 
animal and ugly to reject that God could love us. And I love that line. And it really gives a lot of context to why this is going on in The Exorcist. And I think this this ending kind of pays that off to a degree because that is why these demons or demon are doing this and why the the demon kind of set this trap for them to choose one of these girls to live and one of them to die and why ultimately the devil wins at the end of this and i think that is if you're gonna set up sequels i think it's a good way to set it up the devil wins the first round and i think having one father who his daughter has been possessed but now there's maybe going to be that rift between the two because it's out in the open that she's the daughter he didn't choose when it came down to choosing between her and his wife. Uh, you've also got two parents who have lost a daughter. They were very religious in the, I think they're they're Baptists, and and now they've lost a daughter. God, you know, in in the grand scheme of things, it feels like God wasn't there protecting them. Uh, how are they going to handle that and, and the despair that that is going to cause? I think. Like I said, I don't know if David Gordon Green meant to to tie into that edited out line from the original Exorcist or, or if you saw any of the extended director's cuts or what have you, but uh, I think it really does kind of pay off the, the essence of what Father Marin, that character, was saying in those lines in that staircase scene. Then, of course, there is the Ellen Burstyn debacle with Chris McNeil. I really like that they were bringing her back, but David Gordon Green, again, so much of this reminds me of the same shit he did in Halloween. Just different versions of it. In this one, he has got a legacy character that is being brought back. She's older. She has secluded herself. She's cut herself off from society and she's living alone. I'm not saying she's an alcoholic, but first thing we see, she's getting a drink, but someone needs help. So she's brought back into the fight. Uh, it, it just felt like he rehashed the same storyline that he gave Jamie Lee Curtis in his Halloween trilogy. But it was cool seeing Ellen Burstyn come back. We, we find her in a state where she's written a book about her experience with her daughter being possessed. And that caused a rift between them. And she hasn't seen her daughter since the book came out. While she can't perform exorcism, she has become a student of exorcism and... I like the fact that she brings out the idea that exorcism uh, has many forms. Every religion has some form of exorcism or casting out demons, which is true. I just hated the application in this movie where it was just kind of like a, we are the world. I expected everyone to hold hands at some point, but her character really just felt like she was there to one point that out that all religions have exorcism and it's not just one religion that has the authority over others. And really, her character just felt like she was there to to give monologues. They did that to her character. They did that to Ann Dowd's character. She had a couple like monologues where it just felt like I was being talked to. And it just felt so out of place. Never once have I just stood up and given a monologue about the state of, of what have you. Uh, it, it just all felt very like scripty. You have to write how people talk and people don't talk in monologues like this. But, you know, uh, 
I have to say that the trailer really was a bait and switch because you were made to believe through that trailer that Ellen Burstyn as Chris McNeil was going to be all throughout this movie. She was going to be a main character throughout this movie. She was in like a fraction of this movie. You had the Victor Fielding character goes and gets her, brings her in. She meets with the the two girls and has some quick witty lines of dialogue and then when she meets with the Catherine character she gets her eyes stabbed out with a crucifix horrifying gross but then that sidelines her for the rest of the movie and you get a couple scenes after that where she's in the hospital with her eyes covered up healing but she's done she's made her money and she is done for the rest of the movie now this is probably one of the biggest twists and like i said it's part of the reason why i don't think this movie is horrible it's one of the reasons one of the few reasons that i'm like this is at least an okay movie is the fact that at the very end uh, you have Ellen Burstyn in the hospital room. She's sitting in a chair and you kind of get a POV of somebody walking into the room and you hear her say, Victor, is that you? Because Leslie Odom Jr., his character, came in to talk to her earlier in the movie. So it, you think it's possible that it could be him. But as soon as she said that, I'm like, oh, no, please tell me they're doing what I think they're doing. And then all of a sudden you see a camera angle where somebody's walking up to her. You can't see them because she's sitting in a chair. This person's standing up. So you're only seeing about waist, waist high, stomach high. But you see a hand go to hers. And you can tell it's a female hand and it's a female form. And I was like, oh, yes, they did it. And then, of course, who kneels down? But Linda Blair kneels down and says, no, it's me. And they have a hug. And it was a really touching moment. And to, to see those two together. And, and from what I understand, they haven't kept in touch very much, if at all, since 1973 and The Exorcist. But to see those two characters together again on the screen for the first time in 50 years was, was something special. And does it mean Linda Blair is going to reprise her role for one of the next two or, or both of them? I know David Gordon Green has pitched the idea to her and all she does is laugh. So I, I don't know. I mean, she's kind of, Linda Blair has gotten out of the limelight of acting. She has an animal rescue in California that she's really passionate about and seems more focused on that than getting back in front of the camera again. I don't know. I mean, word was that Ellen Burstyn wasn't going to do this movie until they did something that she wanted and was passionate about, the scholarship for young actors. Maybe Linda Blair's another thing. Maybe she will reprise her role as Reagan McNeil, although she's got a wedding ring on. Uh, I don't know if that's a real wedding ring or or a or a prop, but uh, she may be married in this universe now and may have kids of her own. But at, at any rate, maybe maybe she maybe she has a, a role reprisal if they make a contribution to her animal rescue. I don't know. I don't know what what may happen in the next two movies. We'll kind of talk about the future of this a little bit later. But it really was a touching scene to, to end this scene, those two actresses uh, on the screen together again in, in these roles. But ultimately, the, like I said, this movie was okay. It had a really good cast. I think story-wise is really where this, this movie failed. I think you have two characters in Angela and Catherine who 
they're supposed to be these two girls that are possessed and it really felt like the story only cared about one of them it only cared about the angela character because we got the story of her parents uh before she was born we got the story of her and her father you know living post death of her mother and we got to see their relationship and it very much mirrored the relationship between reagan and chris in the original Exorcist, you know, that, that playful, you know, chasing each other around. And, and it, it felt it felt nice. It felt you know, like you got to know these characters and care about them. Uh, whereas the Catherine character and her parents, you didn't really get to know them at all. And they didn't spend any time developing her character, uh, which I suppose is because she was going to die anyway. So why bother? But it just felt like... You know, it's a story about two girls, but only one of them really mattered. And outside of story gaffes like that, that just, you know, there was, there was a lot of horrible lines of exposition. There were some leaps in logic along the way as to well, why are you just jumping from here to there? Uh, that it was just, it felt disjointed at times. Besides that, I thought the cinematography was was kind of uninspired. That's one of the things I love about the original Exorcist is so many iconic shots and so much play with light and, and shadow. And it was really interesting. And you just didn't have any of that in this. And from an editing standpoint, it just felt like there were moments in the original Exorcist, where you had that flash of the Pazuzu face, just like a, a frame or two, and it was gone. And it really added to the, the tension and the unease that you got with this. It's like they tried to mimic that, but they didn't do it as well as they, they did it in the original. Uh, I mean, I know that's probably not a shocking turn of events, but it felt at moments where they would flash to images of demons and it felt like an MTV video from back in the 90s. It, it just wasn't handled very well and was really forced and like, oh, I see, they're trying to do the thing with the Pazuzu face. They're just being very overt about it and not like a little quick frame in the middle of a shot. They just lingered on it and repeated it and it just was not done very well. I didn't I didn't get anything out of those shots. And of course, like any modern movie, the sound design, it's just a lot of loud noises or somebody smacking a window to try and get you to jump. And it worked. It startled me, but it wasn't scary. And I think that really embodies what this movie one of the big problems I had is it wasn't a scary movie. It was an okay movie. Uh, I'll give it that. It had a really good cast who did as much as they could with what they had script-wise. It just wasn't a very compelling story. And it took too long to get these girls possessed. And then once they got possessed, it was like, ah, there just wasn't anything compelling about it. They didn't try to do anything different. And by the time they did do something a little unexpected, it was too little too late. Now, what does this hold for the future? Because they've got two more movies that they're locked into doing. They spent a shit ton of money, $400 million, to get the rights to do a trilogy for The Exorcist. And the next one is going to be The Exorcist Deceiver. That, I think, is supposed to come around in April of 2025. So right around Easter. Uh, if anything, they know how to market. Uh, bring one out around Halloween. Bring one out around Easter uh, to get all the religious folks worked up. And uh, 
I don't think they care as much now as they did in the 1980s, but uh, that's supposed to be coming out. Uh, what we're going to see, I don't know, because it'll be interesting whether they bring back Ellen Burstyn, uh, whether they bring back Linda Blair. You have to imagine the main cast is going to come back for this. And the demon wasn't defeated. And that, that to me, was an interesting aspect of this, is that they never really talked about the demon. And I was watching an interview with David Gordon Green where he... He essentially said he never says who the demon is. It's not Pazuzu, but he said in researching this, he did a lot of research into uh, Pazuzu and his uh, siblings and his friends and family and all of that. So, I mean, I think there are some some places they could go. I know Pazuzu, his father is Hanpa. He's got a brother named Humbaba. There's also a, a demon in that region, uh, the Mesopotamian region, called Lamastu, which is kind of an antagonist to Pazuzu. There's an Egyptian god, Bess, which is kind of a counterpart to Pazuzu. So there's a lot of places they could go as to who is the demon or demons that are causing the problems in this exorcist story. I don't even think we heard the name Pazuzu. We saw the imagery that you know people researched and found out was Pazuzu. Maybe they didn't even do that, but they really brought the name Pazuzu into it in the Exorcist 2, the heretic. So maybe in this one, you know, David Gordon Green likes to do things very similar in trilogies where, you know, they did this in one and they did this in the second one. So we're going to do a similar thing in the one and a similar thing in the second. So he may actually name who the demon or demons are in this story coming up in the second one, The Exorcist Deceiver coming out in 2025. But ultimately, I didn't care about this movie. Uh, it, it was okay. I can't even say I'm glad I watched it. I could have gone without watching it. I mean, I'm glad I got to watch it so I could talk about it with you, but that's that's the extent of it. And I knew I was going to be disappointed going into this because David Gordon Green, but I had held out hope that maybe he learned his lesson from Halloween. I think the only thing he did right, and maybe the lesson he learned, is not to add too much shitty humor to this. There's no real humor in this. Like, in, in Halloween where he just made kills into jokes. And it's like, this isn't fucking eastbound and down. Uh, this is Michael Myers. There shouldn't be a bunch of jokes. Not that there wasn't some moments of levity, but I think that was more just in performances and awkward lines of dialogue from the original Halloween run of movies. But, uh, but he at least had the good sense to not turn this into a fucking comedy. So I can't appreciate that. But for the most part, David Gordon Green... Brought to the table exactly what I figured he would. That is a legacy sequel that relied on legacy characters, didn't really deliver, and didn't really deliver on the story itself. The story was mediocre at best, and I think The Exorcist deserves better than that. Now, The Exorcist franchise has had a, a laundry list of of movies that have come out that haven't been their best either. So maybe it's par for the course. But when you have the gold standard in the original from 1973, Jesus, you gotta, you gotta aspire to something better. And this just wasn't it. Now, granted, when Exorcist Deceiver comes out in April of 2025, I'll watch it then and we'll talk about it. But I, I'm still not holding out hope. 
Hope left me about halfway through this movie, and David Gordon Green may never get it back. It's not to say there weren't some good ideas in this. Uh, I would like to see David Gordon Green and even Danny McBride, whoever else they want to bring on board. I want to see them do an original movie, because I think they've got good ideas. Halloween Ends, I think, was a, a good idea. It was a good serial killer movie. It just wasn't a good Michael Myers Halloween movie. I'd like to see them do something original instead of applying their own brand of storytelling to these legacy horror franchises. I might actually enjoy a, a Danny McBride, David Gordon Green original horror film. But knowing them, they'd turn it into a horror comedy and just piss me off that way. But at any rate, I've talked enough about The Exorcist Believer. It was an okay film. It was meh at best. But don't take my word for it. If you haven't watched it, I've probably spoiled a lot of shit for you. But hey, you know what? Go find out for yourself if you have watched it. Hopefully you enjoyed it more than I did. Uh, I wouldn't wish you to enjoy it any less than I did because that'd be a pretty abysmal affair. But uh, hopefully you enjoyed it more than I did. I don't blame you if you enjoyed it less or as much as I did. But if you haven't watched it, go check it out for yourself. I want to thank everyone for listening to my thoughts on The Exorcist Believer. You can find out more about what's going on with Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, the podcast on our Facebook and Instagram pages. A lot going on this week. My God. Of course, The Exorcist was supposed to come out this coming Friday. Friday the 13th and it's because that stupid Taylor Swift concert's going to be hitting theaters uh, they decided Universal decided we don't want any part of Taylor Swift so we're going to release uh, the Exorcist Believer uh, a week early so now not only do we have the Exorcist Believer that we got to talk about we're also going to be talking about Pet Cemetery Bloodlines another movie I'm not looking forward to watching uh, but uh, you know I've got to because it's on brand we talk about horror fantasy and sci-fi. Uh, we're also going to be talking about VHS 85, which hit Shudder uh, late last week as well. And we've got a couple shows wrapping up. We have uh, Wheel of Time wrapped up. We had Castlevania, which I watched. I'm going to try and either fit them in this week or maybe they might be some bonus episodes next week. But we are going to be talking about those shows as well. So a lot to get to this week. I'm going to be doing a lot of talking and a lot of recording because uh, we had a lot of episodes. We got, of course, uh, today's episode. It's Monday when you're going to be hearing this, or at least when it drops. Uh, we're going to be talking about VHS. That's, uh, VHS 85 is going to be dropping on Thursday. We've got the Pet Cemetery Bloodlines. Uh, I may be dropping that tomorrow, uh, Tuesday the 10th or Wednesday the 11th. I haven't decided, but one of those two days I'm going to drop the Pet Cemetery Bloodlines. That's going to be a bonus episode, and we've got a bonus episode for Wheel of Time and a bonus episode for Castlevania Nocturne. Uh, not sure exactly when those are going to be dropped, but that's why you go to your podcast platform of choice, whether it's Spotify, iTunes, or, or Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Odyssey, whatever you're listening to this podcast on, iHeartRadio, go to it. Follow the podcast there or like it or subscribe to it, whatever it calls it. Do that and then that way you get the updates on when these episodes drop as soon as they drop. And of course, as always, uh, please leave those reviews. Five stars would be awesome. But whatever review you leave, we do appreciate that. And as always, share this podcast with anyone that you know that loves horror, fantasy, and science fiction. So until next time. Thank you for visiting Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. 
We hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon. But even though you may come back, you never really get to leave Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. Ha 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 ha!